Welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Wednesday the 16th of November. I'm Anthony Day. COP27 continues in Egypt until Friday the 18th, so I'll bring you commentary on that next week. This week's theme is Australia. For a while I've been promising you a review of what's been going on from an environmental point of view since Anthony Albanese's Labour government took office in May. Last week, I spoke to Simon Wright. He's director at Simply Sustainable Consulting and research principal, Institute for Sustainable Futures, at the Orange Campus of the University of Technology, Sydney. I found out that he was born in Cambridge, UK. So, as we're both Brits, we started off by talking about the weather. So I actually live four hours west of Sydney in a place called Orange, which... um, Right. Which is actually very, uh, it's very, well, it's quite English in many ways. We're a thousand metres up, so we have a instantly a cooler climate. And um, our winters are cool and our summers are warm, but not humid. And um, and we're surrounded by vineyards and fruit orchards. So in some ways, it's sort of like a, you know, southern English, uh, sort of northern northern France, northern French climate. Um, wow. It's um Yes. Well, I imagine where you are, you don't get the floods, do you, if you're a thousand feet up? Yeah, no, look, a thousand metres up, we, um, we, um, we, we've had a lot of rain, but yeah, the, the, the water runs downhill and we don't yeah. have a river in Orange, so yeah. we don't tend not to suffer from flooding, but there is, there, there, there is a ridiculous amount of water around. I've never, well, no one's really seen it like this. It's, um, it really is quite unprecedented. Um, you might even think that the climate was changing, but hey, we know that's just a right wing uh, piece of propaganda <laughs> yes talking of the right wing and propaganda um it's been very controversial in australia for a while hasn't it simon um scott morrison i think was the guy who went into parliament with a lump of coal and said don't be afraid of it um, that's right and that's right coal is is very important to your to your country mm. uh exporting coal was equivalent on the latest figures I've seen, to three and a half percent of GDP, and um, well, it's something that you 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 rely on. I mean, not not just mining coal, but mining iron ore and many other metals. Iron ore, in fact, I think is a bigger export than coal. It is, yes, it is. Now, you had a change of government. Al, uh, Anthony Albanese came in in May of twenty twenty two. And everybody expected that things would be much more environmentally friendly, environmentally informed. And in fact, one of the first things he did was to update the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contribution, which is Australia's contribution to achieving the Paris Climate Agreement targets. And he did that in in July, only a few months, no, June, uh, only a month after. He won the election, which is great. Um, the target that was proposed was that you would achieve 43% below the 2005 level by 2030, which is a 15% improvement. But um, that has taken your rating from highly insufficient to sufficient. So he's gone away, but there was an awful long way to go because your carbon footprint per capita is 
one of the very highest in the world. In fact, you're in the top four, I think. You're below China. Mm. China is just off the scale. But um, Australia is worse even than the United States, according to, to some uh, measures. So how much further can Mr Albanese take the country? Well, it's an interesting time, Anthony. We certainly feel as though the adults are back in control, which is nice. Um, the previous government really ignored the science and uh, and perpetuated the the sort of fossil fuel legacy and was positively antagonistic towards the renewables industry. So uh, certainly the change of government um, and the the change in the the um, composition of the respective uh, houses um, in Parliament are, are welcome. Um, we have a government that is certainly making many positive noises and, yes, has set a, a reduction target of 35% uh, by, sorry, 43% by uh, 2030, uh, 2035, 2030, 2030, 2030. that's right. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Um, and um, sorry, I haven't had enough coffee this morning. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, and so these are all very, very welcome noises. Um, but it's still insufficient and it's still below what the scientists recommend. Now, um, Albanese and, uh, and Chris Bowen, the energy minister, have said that this is a uh, it's a floor, not a ceiling. There are many. Um, there, there is a grouping of which, again, is quite unusual for Australia. There is a grouping of independents that have won many marginal seats in particularly in Sydney and Melbourne in the big now these are the teals is that right the teals that's right um they have a strong um um, um pro climate orientation which is great and there is uh, a hope that they will strongly shape the uh, direction of the targets so i think that um at the moment, there is a sense that after 10 years of an extraordinarily conservative government um, and then suddenly a, a very strong statement by the Australian community around wanting change in climate, there is a, I think there is a feeling that um, Albanese uh, is trying to almost use the independence to take him to where Labour would ideally be without Labour making those commitments themselves. And the reason for that is that at the last election, which Labour lost and were expected to win, they made some very aggressive commitments around um, carbon reduction, so moving towards net zero and renewables, which uh, and, and it was cited as one of the major reasons why they lost the election. Um, very, very simplistic analysis. But I think they have had their fingers burned. And so he is trying to play a political game. That's, from my perspective, it's a little frustrating because, like you, um, working in this space, I appreciate the urgency of action. And therefore, further dilly-dallying is really very, very frustrating. But um, but uh, we're hoping that the, the politics will play out. Now, some of the positives are that um, there have been some very 
aggressive commitments made by this government to renewables, um, attempting to get to 80 to 85 percent renewables by 2030. Um, mm. And the state governments are doing an awful lot on the ground. In fact, it's been the state governments in the absence of any federal leadership in the last decade that have been promoting a, uh, a rapid transition. And ironically, it's been the Conservative government in New South Wales that has been one of the leaders in terms of um, promoting uh, renewables, renewable energy targets, building renewable energy zones and special activation precincts. Um, and doing everything they can to accelerate our transition to renewables because they understand the economic opportunity. Uh, well, you've got a you long way about, to go. You've got quite some way. We have to go. a long way to go. Because we have a long way to go. Seventy-one percent of your electricity was generated from fossil fuels in 2021, and fifty-one exactly percent right. of that was was coal. That's um, right. So, and yep. yet you're a country with one of the one of the greatest amounts of sunshine in the world. Well, not just sunshine, but we have astonishing depths of renewable energy resources and and so i think um i think uh we are seeing a um uh, i suppose an awakening in many people's minds that you know we should be the renewable energy superpower and unfortunately our addiction to coal and it has been an addiction um has um has really um, blinded people to the opportunity of renewables but you're absolutely right we have ridiculous amounts of sunshine we're you know the sunniest place on the planet um i think uh, where i live we have about 270 days of sunshine per year um we're a big continent so the wind blows pretty consistently uh obviously we uh, we have some weather extremes and um and particularly, we have lots of offshore opportunity for wind, which has hitherto not been developed, unlike in Europe. Um, and we're only now under this new government starting to talk about offshore wind. But that's, uh, you know, that's that's three to five years away at least. Um, so we do have some great wind resource. We also have um, other other great sources potentially of renewables. We have um, uh, biomass, which could play an important role. Uh, in the overall energy mix, um, we have um, uh, we have um, hydro. Hydro is um, obviously we have the Snowy Hydro, which um, which was built many years ago, and there are plans to extend that. And there are now more hydro projects, pumped hydro projects, uh, um, being considered. Um, there's a there are a couple down the road from where I live here in the central west of New South Wales. Um, but again, they are quite contentious projects and the social license for pumped hydro can be a very complex process, particularly, um, you know, there are many environmentalists, for example, who are very, um, very keen to see action on climate change and very keen to move, move to renewables, but are against pumped hydro, um, sometimes because of the impacts upon the uh, natural environment and areas that you know so so it's complex the social license is complex um but we have a we have a and then we have we have a lot of good research going on into sort of um wave uh, wave powered energy and but obviously these aren't going to happen tomorrow and they're probably not going to help us with our 2030 um targets and of course you know hydrogen hydrogen just seems to be Every other new story seems to be about hydrogen at the moment. And um, and Australia has forged a very close working relationship with Germany to explore a rapid transition to the hydrogen economy. But again, that's probably not going to help us in the short to medium term. That's still some way away. You know, we need we need 
um, our grids. Now, to make hydrogen, you still need energy and it needs to be clean energy. And when we're sitting at about, you know, at the moment, I think we're sitting now, since those 2021 figures, we're sitting at around almost a third of Australia's renewable, Australia's energy is derived from renewables. Um, we've seen some days where um, it's getting up to 60 or 70%, mostly when industry is not um, is not operating, so Saturdays and Sundays. Um, but we're still seeing some very, some very good numbers. Um, and our household solar penetration is the biggest in the world as it should be but but there is there is a realization that we should be the uh the global superpower in renewable energy and that this is a great potential transition away from coal now coal has been an enormously contentious political issue yeah i want to ask and you yeah. about that i mean how mm -hmm. much movement how much freedom of movement has the government on coal given that there are some major investments, the name Adani comes to mind. They're building not only uh, massive mines, but uh, port facilities, railways to um, ship the coal. And all of that has been done with government approval. Now, I can't see, well, tell me, can the present government suddenly turn around, turn its back on that when investors have actually put so much money into projects like this? Look, it's a really good question. I mean, as an academic, I would I would answer as follows. I would say that, you know, generally the market is talking and we're seeing um, coal-fired power stations that were due to close in 2040 and now closing in 2030, 32. Recent announcements, Australia's largest coal-fired power station down in Victoria has been uh, scheduled to shut um, more than uh more than 10 years early earlier than anticipated the market is starting to talk um only yesterday investors were moving into one of australia's largest retail energy companies that also owns generation um and um and there is real pressure on uh coal, particularly um companies with coal fired assets to close them sooner rather than later to enable a clear path to a renewable energy transition. So that's all really positive. Adani is the big blip on the horizon. Sorry, I should also say that um, that our Environment Minister, uh, Tanya Plebisek, has announced um, greater scrutiny of, um, of energy projects just this week, looking at, um, I, 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 I'm guessing, in, a, in, in the run-up to COP27, she was quite keen to be saying good things. So... She was talking about greater scrutiny of, of applications for coal developments. Um, uh, but it is it is insane that we would be contemplating any new um, coal mines and coal developments uh, when we are rapidly or trying to move rapidly to decarbonisation of our economy. Of course, you could, Adani, you're, not, you're not burning the coal, the majority of the coal you're not burning uh, domestically, you're, you're exporting it. You're and exporting it, that's there right. There is demand from places like Indonesia to run their coal-fired power stations. It's very difficult to say, well, we will forego the revenues from sending it out. Uh, but the thing is, and that is the argument somebody else the coal burns industry. it, it still affects the whole world, doesn't it? That's right. And that's the argument of the coal industry. The coal industry says our coal is good coal, it's mined responsibly, it's clean coal, whatever that means, yeah. and hence it's better that we meet their demand. Um, so that is very much the argument of the coal industry. Um, but um, but yes, um, 
Adani is a blip. Um, it's a legacy of the previous government. Um, there are still considerable pressure on uh, companies financing and insuring Adani. Um, but it certainly seems counterintuitive to where we are trying to head um, with our with our decarbonization pathway. So um, it is a very it is a very mixed picture. It is still a big part of our economy, and there is still a lot of sensitivity in coal mining communities about jobs and transitions. Mm. And there are still there's still an absence of a detailed transition strategy in Europe. You've obviously had lots of conversations. Well, in the UK, in Spain, in Germany, in uh, Slovakia, in Poland, all big coal mining areas, lots of conversations around transition plans. Um, we are a little behind on that. And, um, and that has caused a lot of uncertainty in coal mining communities. So it's not so much about the, the coal, I think it's about the jobs. And, um, and I think that's something that, um, and of course, you know, where you have coal mines, you have communities, whole communities that are very contingent upon those mines. And those communities in the Hunter Valley, in, here in New South Wales, in Gladstone, in Queensland, um, and also over in WA, um, those communities want some answers about how they're going to survive in this low carbon environment when their coal mines shut. So there's a lot of sensitivity. Interestingly, um, the, the, that it was the coal mining areas that um, at the previous election uh, contributed very much to Labor's defeat. This time round, it's been the coal mining areas who have sort of acknowledged that they need to transition. And there was a much stronger, um, much stronger support of Labor in what have been traditionally Labour heartlands, unionised Labour heartlands, similar to the UK, um, but they still want some detail and answers. And I think this government has a window opportunity, um, probably one electoral term, to give those answers to those communities. But it's very challenging. The mining industry is, is slightly different. I think the mining industry sees a shiny future in the low carbon landscape. We know that you know Australia is very fortunate. We sit on um, we sit on a lot of uh, mineral deposits that are absolutely critical to um uh, to the renewable energy future um the demand for uh for um uh, for all of those metals for batteries and for componentry um is uh, is going to remain very very high and i think the mining industry sees a bright future and we're seeing some of the key um you know the leaders the ceos of australia's largest mining companies looking at investment in hydrogen and clean energy to support their mining activities. So I think the mining industry sees a bright future in, the, in, in renewables, but I think the coal, the future of coal, I mean, the future of coal is pretty clear. It's just about how we get there and how we bring those communities along with us. Um, so that think, is the challenge for this government. Do you think that the mining industry, therefore, is going to specialise more in... Um, uh, special metals rather than bulk commodities like iron ore? I think there's already a realisation that Australia needs to value add onshore. Historically, we've just dug the stuff up and shipped it off and then let other people um, uh, really um, create value and make the money from that. Um, but absolutely, I think Australia understands it needs to specialise to add value onshore um, and to support this uh, this renewable energy transition um 
And of course, being such an energy intensive industry, it also understands that it needs to play a role in terms of investments in uh, in generation and particularly and particularly um, hydrogen. We're seeing Fortescue Metals um, uh, in particular, and their CEO um, um, uh, is, is, has been very outspoken in terms of the need to drive investments in clean energy and particularly in hydrogen. Right. Now, according to Climate Action Tracker, your nation's land use and forestry is in fact a source rather than a sink for CO2. Has that um, uh, appeared anywhere on the on the national agenda? Is anybody addressing that issue? Yeah, it's a very hot issue at the moment, Anthony. Um, again, the uh, hotter that it might have been under the previous government. Um, and obviously the discussions and commitments at COP27 around methane and methane reduction. That's a big issue for us because of our agricultural industry and particularly um, um, cattle. You know, cattle is an enormous industry here. Um, I drive around and cattle and so livestock dominates the landscape, um, particularly at the moment where most of the crops have been ravaged by the rain. Um, and um, and so it's a massive issue for farmers. The good news is that the the farming groups, uh, National Farmers Federation, uh, Meat and Livestock, are all making very clear commitments towards net zero. There's an acknowledgement that something needs to be done. Um, the conversations around biodiversity, obviously, Australia is a very very large country as a mass of biodiversity, but also can play an enormous role in terms of using its um, natural assets to, to, to capture and store carbon. Um, there's, real, um, there's real interest, I wouldn't say excitement at the moment, because we know that the methodologies around measuring carbon in soils are very questionable and, uh, and variable, um, but there's real interest in the farming community as um, uh, looking at carbon as a source of income for them. Australian farmers are looking to diversify. They farm in what is the toughest, probably the toughest climate, or one of the toughest climates in the world. And unlike their US and European counterparts get no subsidy. So farming in Australia is very, very tough and farmers are very grounded individuals. Um, and But they're also incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, there's a general perspective that farmers are not entrepreneurial, but I would really counter that. I think they're incredibly entrepreneurial because they have to be to survive. And so there's a real interest there in um, in carbon farming um, and working with governments to uh, generate income from their from their assets. Essentially, farmers are not stupid. They're very canny business people and they will do what they're paid to do. And so if we can generate some um, some uh, funding schemes for farmers to store carbon than they will um but at the moment those schemes have been very patchy right. quite complex and um and so that that market has not moved as much perhaps as it might have done but absolutely look there is a general awareness of the, the important role i think agriculture accounts for about 13 percent of our total emissions you may have the figures in front of you there, but I remember listening to a podcast not so long ago talking about that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an enormously significant contribution. Um, and the farmers are very mindful that, um, you know, Australia has a very 
positive reputation in terms of its 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 agricultural products overseas. We're seen as a clean, responsible um, ag agricultural producer, but there is now a need for us to be a clean, responsible, and low carbon producer of ag products. And right. the farming community is very aware of that, yeah. but they need some help in getting to that point. Yeah. Simon, you say you drive around. How many Australians are driving electric cars these days? We probably have the lowest penetration of EVs of, of any developed country. Again, unfortunately, a bit of a legacy of the previous government that used that refused to support this transition and um, and also refused to establish emissions standards for vehicles. The new government has started talking about that, which is refreshing. Um, and the state governments are starting to invest in charging infrastructure, both in the cities and the regions. One of the challenges we have, obviously, Anthony, is um, we can see um, really strong interest now. I had a cup of coffee with a mate this morning. He drives a Tesla. Um, there's a strong interest now um, in um, in the cities, um, in electric vehicles, because we were so recalcitrant in terms of our emission standards, not many electric vehicles were actually making their way to us. And actually, a lot of car manufacturers were dumping older models of cars into Australia, arguably still are. Yeah. Um, and so that's now um, starting to change. And we are seeing investment in infrastructure. But the challenge we have is that, you know, we are the most urbanised country in the world. 80% of our people live in our cities. Um, I don't. I live out in the country. I'm the 20%. And the distances between um, towns is quite enormous. And the populations are very thin. And so there's a real challenge for us in building infrastructure in the regions. But but in the cities, a great opportunity. I think what we'll see is we'll see, as we're seeing with renewables, I think we'll see in Australia one of the quickest transitions to electric vehicles, at least in the cities of any of any country. And that's starting now. Um, and we're seeing commitments next year of um, greater numbers of electric vehicles to be imported into Australia. And so certainly the EV future here is um, is bright. And obviously yesterday's announcement by Volvo of focusing solely on electric vehicles um, was very exciting. And people looked at that. And I think people are realising that the future is electric. Um, and certainly in the cities, we'll see a rapid transition. But in the country, um, both in terms of vehicles and also in terms of heavy vehicles, heavy vehicles also is a, is a challenge for us. Australia has a woeful rail network because of years of underinvestment and so um unlike in europe where a lot of um a lot of goods are shipped by rail most of our um goods logistics is focused solely on big trucks um i just spent the last few days traveling around new south wales and probably probably 50 percent of the vehicles on the road are large um large trucks um everything is shipped by road which is these, these are the trucks with multiple trailers aren't they yeah so typically where i live we have one trailer but out, out in outback australia they have two or three the road trains yeah uh, they're absolutely enormous and um and look you know it's um it's a very inefficient way to, to to ship stuff around but we do have that unfortunately is the way that it is we're not going to see rail um rail is taking more and more um uh, of um uh, of more and more market share Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a new inland rail link just being built not far from where I live here mm -hmm. in central New South Wales. 
um, for transporting goods from Adelaide and Melbourne uh, and Sydney uh, up through Central Australia and then off to um, Queensland, the Territory and over to Western Australia. So that is happening slowly. Right. But we need solutions for our, we need electric solutions for heavy, heavy vehicles. Now we have seen a electric truck company um, starting up in Melbourne, which is very exciting. Um, and I think we are seeing enormous amounts of innovation in Australia around um, around electric, um, which is which is really exciting. Um, so look, I, going back to your original question, I think we will see a really rapid transition in Australia. It's been um, non-existent to date. EV penetration is very low, um, but I think we are about to see a really a really massive and rapid transition um of uh, of vehicles to um to electric which is very exciting and we'll see some economies of scale and we'll see vehicle prices coming down and we're seeing fast charges emerging around the traps and so it's an exciting time right well going back to the broader picture it seems quite clear that since the new government's come in a lot of things have changed a lot of things have been done do you see that momentum continuing to to go forward well, let me clarify. I would say that a lot of commitments have been made and there are lots of conversations going on. We haven't seen much action yet. I mean, it's been a very short, short period. It's only it's barely six months since the yeah. Yeah. Um, since the new government was elected. But we've seen a an exponential um, uplift, I suppose, in terms of engagement excitement there are billions and billions of dollars of investments now being discussed whereas six months ago they weren't being discussed nobody wanted to invest in Australia it was too uncertain uh, the, the risk profile was too great with a government that clearly wasn't supportive of renewables so we're seeing lots of good conversations lots of commitments being made um, uh, lots of multi-stakeholder conversations with industry and government and communities um lots of really exciting plans but you know the proof of the pudding as they say is 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 yet is yet to be um to be eaten and digested and at the moment we're still a little way from that there are very many obstacles not least um the the the, the, the obstacle that all developed economies are facing which is a lack of people to do the work you know we have these incredibly ambitious goals to build um, solar and wind assets in regional Australia and a lot of a lot where I live around here but um but unemployment rates are very low and when you can't find um plumbers or um or painters yeah goodness me you can't find you know you can't find engineers and wind farm technicians so it's it there are lots and lots of obstacles but look the outlook is is, is way better than it was uh, lots of positive conversations and it's an exciting time in the renewables landscape in Australia and I personally I have believed this for a long time is we have so much potential here we really could be the global renewable energy superpower if we can uh, move quickly um, and we can get some alignment in terms of investment and government policy um and um uh, and and address some of these logistics issues it's a very very exciting time here for renewables and i hope that we can go from sort of global climate pariah to a global energy superpower and lead the way in, um both in terms of um uh, of products but also in terms of um technology and know-how 
and that 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 renewables can become the new mining and mining services that Australia will be known for its knowledge and smarts around renewables and around some of those value-added services that are so critical to our global renewable transition. Well, Simon, that's a very positive and optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and insights into Australia with the Sustainable Futures Report. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks, Anthony. Simon Wright of the University of Technology, Sydney. I need to make a correction. In that interview, I said that Australia's revised NDC took its overall rating from highly insufficient to sufficient. In fact, the rating by Climate Action Tracker was changed from highly insufficient to insufficient. Still some way to go. As I said, next week I shall be commenting on the outcomes of COP27 and other issues which have come up over the last few weeks. I have a programme of interviews which will take us through now until February. Later this month I'll return to the theme of managing carbon footprints then we have news from the Material Library of India and an interview with Stacy Savage, the Texas trash talker. Jane White has contacted me with a number of ideas for future episodes and thanks also to John and Darren for your feedback on previous episodes. As I said, the schedule is quite full for some weeks ahead but I'm always grateful for suggestions and ideas and I hope to do them justice in due course. Jane, John and Darren are, of course, some of my loyal patrons who support the Sustainable Futures Report to keep it independent and ad-free. I'm always most grateful to them and to all other patrons. Maybe you'd like to join them. Details at patreon.com SFR. On the Sustainable Futures Report website, you'll find links to background information on the state of the environment in Australia. That's it for this week. Thanks again to my guest, Simon Wright. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time.